up on today's podcast. The thing about treating people as adults and respecting that there is no right or wrong way to do anything, because I think too often there's a very paternalistic approach from professionals to the lay public that, well, they should do what we think because we're the experts. And I think that's not then an equal relationship. And so we have to be okay with being disagreed with as professionals. What do we mean when we use the term ethics? Where does ethics fit in our understanding of the duty of care of doctors and lawyers and other professionals? Where does ethics sit as a moral compass for decision-making? I'm Jane Gunn, the Barefoot Mediator, and this is a show where we have some of those deep conversations about issues and choices that are impacting society and our lives right now. In today's episode, I am speaking with Dr. Liz Evans, a doctor who is championing the cause of medical ethics and the doctor-patient relationship at a time where there is increasing pressure on doctors to follow a technocrat and protocol-led approach to medicine. Welcome, Liz. Thanks for inviting me on. So I've been really excited about talking to you, interested too, because I think with my background as a lawyer and yours as a medical doctor, Ethics should be the sort of touchstone, the foundation of what we both do. And yet I get a sense that it's got a little bit lost and we have got a little bit confused about how that applies in our day to day thinking and decision making. So I'm really interested to explore that with you today. So Liz, give us a little bit of background to to you, your qualifications and really why ethics is a topic of interest to you right now. Okay, so um, I started off as a very conventional medical doctor, um, did my training, started my house jobs, um, and I was planning to do uh, obstetrics and gynecology. um, That was what I wanted to do. And I was in the middle of doing some SHO jobs, and I had a flu vaccine without actually looking back any informed consent. I didn't particularly need one, but they just came round and I was quiet and they said, does anyone want a flu vaccine? this was the occupational health and I just happened to be sitting there without a patient to see and I said oh yeah give me one that's fine you know there was no discussion what was it what any side effects were had it didn't think anything more of it and then the next day started feeling really quite unwell and within about 10 days was bed bound and that began the start of a two-year recovery process where I had to take two years off work having developed chronic fatigue syndrome which was um you know I don't I think you know on the balance of probabilities was definitely triggered by that vaccine and so that gave me a real paradigm shift you know I hadn't even realized that a vaccine could have any sort of side effects I hadn't appreciated what it actually felt like to be on the receiving end of of a drug side effect because it doesn't matter how rare a side effect is when it happens to you it happens 100% So I gradually rebuilt my health um, using complementary medicine, nutrition, osteopathy, acupuncture, homeopathy, tried lots of different things because I knew that Western medicine very quickly. I knew that they couldn't help me because I knew that that was an illness that you were told you might get better. You might not. You know, it's kind of luck. And I was amazed to find that my body healed and repaired. and, And I was so excited. So that kind of changed my way of thinking anyway. I went back into medicine thinking that people would be very excited to hear my story and that the human body can heal and repair and the difference diet and supplements and all these different things that I'd been trying 
had made and found not a lot of interest and particularly not a lot of interest in the fact that I'd also started to look into vaccines and realised that there was a lot of data published in peer-reviewed journals, you know, showing that there are side effects, you know, and, and that's something that I hadn't been taught in medicine. So I think that kind of left me with this sort of under really respecting medical interventions and realizing we can't just you know treat them like sweets that there there are risks and benefits to all medications all medical interventions and we have to treat that process with respect I then went away and had my kids took 10 years out and then I've actually gone back and for the last 12 years have been doing complementary medicine so I deregistered as a doctor because I wanted to help people to heal from all sorts of illnesses and um and just help their bodies to repair so but I, I do have a campaigning spirit. So over the last few years, I've done sort of various campaigns, uh, which actually now I look back on ethical things. So I was very interested in um, health effects from wireless radiation, which is a, a sort of a pollution that's been sort of imposed on us all, you know, all around us. And no one's really thought about it. But then for people who suffer from something like electrosensitivity, which I suffered from briefly, probably because I'd had chronic fatigue in the past. Again, that was a sense that, wow, there, there's this stuff that's being, you know, imposed on me. And, you know, there, there's a whole community of people who are unable to live normal lives because of this. So I did a lot of um, speaking on that. I um, you know, went through all the data, discovered, you know, tens of thousands of scientific studies, became a bit of an expert on that. And so then when COVID started, I was kind of in the perfect position to, with all of my background, to be able to see things from a different perspective, perhaps to, to the rest of the world. Being outside the medical profession, I was able to see very quickly, I was like, what is going on here? This None of this makes sense. This is not how medicine was practiced. 15 years ago or 10 years ago when I was doing medicine and all my sort of uh, antennae were up that that there was a big ethical problem and yeah I don't know if you want to sort of go into that more or or generally sort of ethics and where your interest in ethics comes from or even sort of let's go back to sort of how do you define ethics you know what what is ethics for you and and you know what is what does it mean then in terms of how we all make decisions because well let's start with what 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 you think ethics is Liz so I am a really committed Christian so for me ethics is the is founded on that sort of framework spiritual um, framework that every human being every human life is sacred we're made in the image of God and we should treat all human beings as individuals with dignity their lives as uh, you know have worth and so I I completely reject any of this sort of greater good ideology which I feel is very dehumanizing so I think that's kind of the core of my ethics is the the desire to treat every human being with dignity respect and the sanctity of life and for other people you know I wonder then how we how we create a generic definition of ethics for others who perhaps aren't Christ, practicing Christians or whatever. I mean, I think many religious faiths would hold, and, and I think a lot of people of, you know, either of faith or none would have that sense that, 
human mm-hmm. beings um there is a, there is a sanctity of life um of the individual but no i think it's it's a framework a moral framework within which you make decisions and it's based on the value of the individual it's not allowing the sort of the ends to justify the means for example um so it's it is the opposite of greater good utilitarianism where you know as long as you save more people than you kill then it doesn't really matter you know it's it's that sense that no every human being's autonomy sovereignty have to be respected and we have to allow people as long as the person is not actively going out and you know harming other people they 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 have to be allowed to make their own decisions and we should not be imposing things upon them just because we think it might benefit somebody else. So I think in law, we probably come at ethics uh, from the perspective of justice and fairness, and, mm-hmm. um, uh, those kind of, of principles. And then for me as a mediator, um, particularly the, the, the mediation that I practice, I, I think two things that kind of overlap with what um, how you define ethics are um, fully informed consent and determination. Mm-hmm. So really, when I'm uh, mediating a, a conflict um, or, or helping someone solve a problem, um, I'm simply facilitating their deeper thinking so that they are able to draw on all the information they have and then make their own decision by having thought more deeply about it. So I guess that there's quite an overlap there in what in what. Yeah. And I think in terms of medical ethics, so you're right, there's sort of real fundamental principles. Um, obviously, there was the Hippocratic Oath, which was first do no harm. And the idea of that is that every medical sort of intervention, treatment, whatever you do has the potential to cause harm. Um, and so you need to make sure you don't cause more harm than good. But also you have this this principle of informed consent that the person who's receiving the treatment is given full disclosure on risks you know known risks and also unknown risks because in some things you know things haven't been trialed for very long we might not know the long-term ramifications you know could it cause cancer we may not know that could it cause problems with fertility you know if we don't know that we should disclose that and to an 85 year old that may be neither here nor there to a 15 year old that is hugely important so different people will put different value on risk and the risk that they're prepared to take the risks that they won't take and then also the benefits and the benefits may vary from person to person so it may be that somebody who's at very low risk of an illness doesn't benefit as much from some preventative drug like a statin for example than someone who's extremely high risk of that illness so it's very individualized Um, And another really key factor is that you must say what alternatives are to your treatment you're offering, including the option to do nothing. So there should be this idea that it's it's just as valid to choose to do nothing, that this should be done um, with no coercion. That's a really, really key factor in medical ethics, because there's obviously a, a sort of inherent power imbalance to adopt a patient relationship. The patient is vulnerable. They may be sick. They are not skilled necessarily to the same level as the doctor. So there is in that power imbalance, there's a real potential for abuse to occur. 
And that's why the ethical framework has to be really strong to protect the patient from any harm from the doctor and to keep the doctor as an advisor, not as a sort of um, somebody who's imposing something on on the person. So similar to mediation in that we as mediators are not supposed to impose our view or have any ulterior motive or interest in the outcome of the case yeah. and doing nothing is just as valid and I think for uh, many mediators in my profession there is quite a lot of pressure to settle or resolve something mm-hmm. um, and say that you've settled it and and that you but that is not necessarily the choice of the parties and I think the other overlap I, I, I hear is this whole piece of risk analysis being able to really do to being really able to understand uh, the risks and the benefits and weigh them up between taking alternative courses of action. So, yes, already I see a lot of overlap in in the work that we do, which is which is fascinating, but also helpful because I think, you know, then if you broaden it out into sort of wider society and the decisions we have to make in everyday life or in our workplace, we could use the same framework, couldn't we, in terms of, you know, what's the risk, what's the benefits, are people fully informed, are they being given choices and are they understanding how to, uh, I often ask people, what or what criteria are you making that choice? And they don't always know. And I think that there's the, the thing about um, treating people as adults and respecting that there is no right or wrong way to do anything. Because I think too often there's a very paternalistic um, approach from professionals um, to the lay public that, well, they should do what we think because we're the experts. And I think that's not then an equal relationship. And so we have to be okay with being disagreed with as professionals. Yes. Or not having our advice taken. Yes. Yeah. And of course, both of us come from professions where we are um, we are seen as professional problem solvers. People come to us to solve their problem, whether it's a medical or a legal problem or a business problem. And I guess many times there's a pressure on us to to solve that problem, to give our our opinion or or um, suggest a particular route when perhaps we shouldn't be doing that too quickly. Yeah, and and there's a certain amount of pride, isn't there, in that as well. So you know, people, you 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 have to be really careful to be, you know, to understand your own psychology, to know that, you know, this isn't about you trying to feel important or knowledgeable or you know get someone to do what you've you know researched and think is right. It, it's that sort of detachment from the outcome isn't it so you you know you give the information but then you're detached from how somebody decides because it's their life and they will have to live with the consequences you know and uh, that's that was kind of my big learning curve was you know that one flu shot which I had no idea there were any side effects to having even having been through medical school I had to live with those consequences for several years um, I couldn't work. I, you know, I couldn't socialize. I couldn't do so many things. And the person who had given it to me thinking, well, most people are fine with this. I don't need to, you know, this is just routine. It doesn't matter. Well, they've just, they've carried on with their life. Uh, so that's, that's the real weight of responsibility, I think, in consenting someone to anything is that you have to make sure it really is their decision and that they 
are able to, you know, make it with the best possible information. So that if something goes wrong, God forbid, then they wouldn't ever say, oh, I wish you told me that. I didn't know. So do you think the challenges or one of the challenges is, Liz, that we just don't give enough time and space for this process of thinking and decision making? I get the sense that in medicine and possibly in in law, we're focused on the wrong thing and we're not giving the time and space for people to have the information, to process the information and to make that decision, you know, fully informed with all the, you know, that that whole piece of thinking about the consequences and making that decision. Certainly. I think uh, that the doctors who do it most right are the surgeons. Mm-hmm. Generally, I think, you know, they've got a very because they're doing something that's obviously quite dramatic, isn't it? They're cutting into someone's body. Yes. So they've um, I mean. I don't know how it is now, but when I was there, you know, we really did take consent seriously. You would you would have a consent clinic where people who were pre-op would come in. You would go through what the operation was. You'd explain it. You'd talk about, you know, these are the risks and you give it in terms of, you know, one in a hundred, one in a thousand, one in 10,000. And you would give them time. You give them information. They could also maybe come back and change their mind. When it comes to when it comes to pharmaceuticals or vaccines, that that same sort of respect for the consent process seems to be been lost. And maybe because it's we just think it's we've kind of got seduced into this idea. It's very routine. You know, you're giving out an antibiotic or a statin and you're not really, you know, it feels like normal. So therefore, it's not dangerous. But then for the person who has a massive anaphylactic reaction to something, you know, that's really life threatening. So I think we should treat the whole process, whatever we're doing with this respect and and sort of be more sober about it. I've certainly found so part of my work has been uh, with with boards and with organisations and chairing a board. And again, I feel uh, that the time and space is not really allowed for important decision making something mm-hmm. might be raised at a board meeting and you're immediately expected to gather your thoughts and then vote about it without having time and space to have explored it to be given more information or even to ask for more information and that if you raise your hand and say actually I'm not quite ready to make this decision you might be regarded as rather a a, a nuisance or stalling something that was important so I, I wonder why I wonder why that is and why ethics has been sort of pushed onto the back burner or perhaps we're not even aware that that's what we're talking about when we're thinking about these important decisions I mean, in some, I think it's happened not just over the last three years, but over the last sort of three decades, probably, that we've, life has speeded up, hasn't it? So everything is done at 100 miles an hour. We have so much less time, you know, probably due to technology, basically eating up our time. People have a shorter attention span. But I think in medicine, what I've seen when I first started, we were just bringing in this evidence-based medicine concept which was a very noble concept. You know, we do want obviously our practice to be based on evidence. But at that point, it was we were encouraged to read papers, to critically appraise things, to kind of weigh up, you know, balance up, you know, what's the conflicts of interest in this paper? You know, how how valid is their conclusion? You know, does their conclusion reflect the results? All of these things. But I think since I've left medicine, what's happened is these sort of 
guidelines that came out of evidence-based medicine have turned into algorithms, you know, through protocols and algorithms. So doctors are now not going and looking at the evidence. They're just following a list of instructions that have been given to them. You know, you have hypertension. This is the protocol. And then it's just like a sort of um, one size fits all. But of course, one size doesn't fit all. It never has, especially with the human body in medicine, because people are so different. And what you've lost then is the the art of medicine, which is the site. You know, so people are very kind of uh, wedded to these protocols. They think that's the science. That's that's the best practice. But science has no ethics by nature. It is amoral. You need the art of medicine, which is the human doctor who uses their wisdom, their experience, their intuition, their experience, everything that that they bring, their own sort of moral framework to to be able to find the right treatment, you know, maybe with the help of guidelines, but not slavishly following guidelines. So that's kind of speeded up medicine because it's easier now, isn't it? You can just type in, you know, hypertension, get your guidelines, give them a medicine, they're out of the surgery in five minutes. There is no time then. Whereas, you know, and, and we see the healthcare system is so stretched. Nobody has enough time to do anything more than just prescribe, you know, reach for a prescription, prescribe it and get the person out because the next person's que- queuing to get in. And I think so everything that's happened to the system over the last 30 years has brought us to this point where doctors almost now have forgotten the ethical framework because they're too busy just kind of trying to get through the volume of work and just follow these protocols and almost abrogating responsibility to whoever wrote the guidelines. And we don't know who did write the guidelines. There is no, there's, you've then got these distant bureaucrats practicing medicine on individuals and it's very dehumanizing. It's very interesting you say that because I was speaking at a, actually a mediation conference and we were discussing some guidelines we had for training of mediators actually and we went where did those come from we went back to the person we called the grandfather of mediation and he said oh we made them up <laughs> it's like uh you know where did they originally come from well we just thought this would be the right protocol and nobody had questioned it over the time in between it was just then seen as oh that's the protocol that's the expert view because yeah. this is the thing everyone defers to the experts so then the doctors who are on the ground are going well these experts have told me that I need to do this. So even if their gut feeling is like, oh, it, the minute you step outside the protocol, then you are taking a risk because, you know, if something goes wrong within the protocol, you say, well, you know, I did what I was told. If something goes wrong and, and there is no, you know, risk-free option in medicine, there's always going to be risk. So you're, so I think this whole system is set up now that doctors don't feel safe to go off, you know, the Piste. yeah yeah oh fascinating and so uh, when I've heard you speak Liz you're talking about the difference between protocol um and patient-led medicine which I think is yeah. a distinction and then Hippocratic versus technocratic so technocratic is following I suppose the algorithms and so on mm-hmm. that are again very useful for us to have you know data and data analysis mm-hmm. but um, somewhere we've kind of lost the balance, I guess, between those two um, ends of the spectrum. 
Yeah. So basically, I think you've, you've ended up completely dehumanizing the whole process, because when you've got technocratic medicine, that is the, the doctor is effectively deprofessionalized. They're no longer able to be an autonomous professional who is, you know, trusted to make decisions based on their um, teaching, their experience, their wisdom. They can't innovate anymore. And effectively, they become kind of automatons, which is deeply dissatisfying, you know, compared to how medicine, you know, medicine is a very revered, you know, being a doctor is a very revered job, you know, historically. But I would argue less and less so as they are just following some algorithm. There is no, you know, you, you sort of get to the point where you think, well, could AI do it just as well? Because that's that's all they're doing. And the risk is, you know, it, it's very then vulnerable to vested interests kind of corrupting the system because healthcare is huge money business. You know, there's masses of money there. Yeah. We've got a national health service, you know, which it takes a lot of taxpayers money, which goes to drugs. So if you've got people near the top, you know, who are pr- promoting these or, or producing the, the protocols, being influenced by the pharmaceutical industry, for example, it's a great business model, isn't it? Because you can get more and more drugs as the the main sort of approach for, you know, illnesses or or, or conditions that people come in with. So it's a it's a model that suits business and which suits profit, but impoverishes the patient and the doctor, I think. And you lose that doctor patient relationship, which should be that the doctor is the advocate for that patient and that patient only in that moment. They shouldn't be working for the government's best interest, for the rest of public health's best interest, um, just for that one patient. And there should be confidentiality and there should be trust. Such a valid point, Liz. And I think, you know, that question, who benefits from this decision um, you know, and it applies to other things as well, doesn't it? You know, the expansion of the food industry and, and many, many other things that impact our life where we make choices or we are influenced to make choices, but we don't think who is benefiting from that. If that choice isn't ultimately in our best interests and mm-hmm. actually may harm us, uh, and that's the case for many substances that we consume, uh you know whose interest is it most in who is benefiting from it and who is facilitating our decision making on that and why don't we have the right information to hand to be able to at least make an informed decision Mm -hmm. definitely and I think you know these big industries you know spend a lot of money lobbying you know political lobbying and uh, regulators they they will invest they will and they gain influence so suddenly these these protocols are not just objective, you know, um, analysis and uh, from the science. They they have they have a, a sort of a an agenda, which is pushing a certain whatever the you know whoever's been lobbying for their drug to be put on on for, at this particular time, and then the doctors don't feel able to question it because you know everyone's going to say disagree with them because they're going to say well that's what the protocol said so that must be the site so the whole evidence-based medicine got completely hijacked i would say and industry have have exploited it and it's costing the country a lot of money because you know more and more expensive drugs 
being you know used and given out to many people who don't need them yes so Liz what's your sense of where we go from here I mean you and I are both passionate about ethics but sort of <clears throat> awareness of what it is to me it seems to be um thought thoughtful leadership or thoughtful decision making um maybe coming back to a sense of what our own personal values are what values in society are what what the value of humanity actually is i i really like this term human flourishing Mm -hmm. maybe with some of the bigger decisions whether we can go back and say does this actually enable human flourishing either in an individual or in a group or in society and i think we've lost sight of that sense of human flourishing human community human connectivity are we are we facilitating that or not but i wonder where you see we go from here because we seem to, as you say we seem to have been hijacked into forgetting or being disabled from having these deeper conversations and 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 debates before we make decisions yeah, and I think it's what we've seen is an increasing centralization of everything, haven't we? So that there are no longer local decisions or individual decisions. There's there's not allowed to be a difference between different communities or different countries. Or, you know, now we're seeing the WHO pushing to take that centralization even further so that they become the de facto decision making authority for the whole world, which is just completely absurd because. You, you know, even in your local community, you can't do one size fits all because you've got different people with different needs, different, you know, vulnerabilities, different ages, all, all the different things that happen. So I think we have to move to decentralizing and to empowering doctors and, and getting them to reclaim their profession and and to be comfortable with taking risks because I think that is what this whole nanny sort of state thing the the centralization kind of makes you feel safe because you don't have to make any dangerous decisions and you're not at risk and you you know you can just follow follow the orders and everything will be fine but I think ultimately it's it leads to this human humans not flourishing in any way because we flourish when we're challenged so I think doctors need to reclaim their profession they need to stand up for their Hippocratic oath and say we we will not do protocol driven care it's not working it's gone too far you know evidence is one part of our decision making and we have to be allowed the art of medicine as well we have to be allowed autonomy and we have to be okay to dissent because how can you innovate if you you know nobody will ever innovate if they can't ever go against the consensus Um, and the other thing is patients need to demand ethical care from their doctors and nurses we should be not accepting this you know yeah I'm going to give you a I don't know I'm going to give you a, a vaccine and you should be saying well hang on tell me the risks and benefits and what about this condition that I have was it tested on people with say I don't know heart disease which is what you know I have say you say I've got heart disease was this drug tested on someone with heart disease no well how do we know it's safe for me you know what sort of is my risk reduction going to be will I you know is it going to save me any years of life what would the side effects be you know all of these different things I think patients need to demand, not accept 
a sort of, oh, yes, you know, Jane, um, yes, you come in here and, and I'm just going to give you this antibiotic. And you go, oh, OK, doctor, yes, I'll do whatever you say, because that's not um, a properly functioning adult relationship, which we and we all need to kind of step into our power, be happy to say no, um, be happy to be unpopular, mm-hmm. um, because I think we can only sort of change this system from the grassroots up. We're not going to change the people who are pushing this agenda because they are gaining, you know, and they're gaining power, they're gaining money um, and control. So we have to stand up and say, no, this isn't good enough. We want doctors to practice ethical medicine as patients. We have we can make demands on them. And I don't think I I think a lot of us don't realise what our own power is to say no, whether it's, uh, you know, in the doctor's surgery or in the boardroom, for example, Mm -hmm. you know, the ability to say, actually, no, I don't really agree with this decision or I'd like some more time to think or those sort of things. One of the things I focused on is something called the good child handicap. Um, which a psychologist, and I'm sure others but that I follow called uh, Dr. Al Siebert, has looked at. And it's this sense that, you know, we are brought up from early childhood to be good, mm-hmm. uh, to do the right thing, which is to please our parents and then to please our teachers and then and, and not to rock the boat. And so then we, you know, we then that becomes a handicap to us because Mm -hmm. when we go into situations where we are at risk or we have to consider risk, we are at huge pressure to be good, to be good children. Yeah. And not not to rock the boat and not to upset others. And I think we haven't learned the art of saying no. And it is an art again. You know, how do you say no? How do you disagree without being disagreeable? Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah I, I I completely agree with you is that we we need to reclaim that power I suppose to speak up for uh, our own values and things that we want to see at, at you know in different situations whether that's at home at work or in the doctor's surgery yeah and and that takes courage but it is so rewarding in the end because you feel empowered you're living your life the life that's right for you not the life that somebody else is telling you how to live and and I think you know we can't achieve our potential without taking risks but it is you know it's vulnerability though as well isn't it so you know it's much safer and I I do meet many uh, of my own patients who just say well I just do what the doctor says because then if something bad happens it's not their fault but the point is that's a very very um dissatisfying way I think ultimately to live your life you know you want to live your life to the full and and that means you know standing in your power and 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 recognizing your power to be able to be a sovereign person who is autonomous who can say yeah okay I've I've heard your advice I'm not I'm not going to follow it because it doesn't resonate with me or I heard somebody else and I actually agree with them more. Fantastic. So Liz, who is, you are leading the way in this uh, for sure. And um, you're, is it your chief executive of an organization called UKFMA? UK Medical Freedom Alliance. Yeah. So we set, um, we set up in October, 2020 because of the, basically the ethical vacuum that seemed to be happening with all the way, all the pandemic was being run 
that there was no appreciation of harms being caused by many policies and and just the way that you know doctors were frightened of their patients for example were telling patients not to come and see them because they might have covid and refusing to see patients refusing to let visitors into hospitals to be with their dying relatives it was just so standing outside the system it was so wrong I was like, you, you have to have red lines. There should be red lines that are not crossed, no matter how bad the situation is. Because actually the time where medical ethics matters the most is in an emergency situation, because it's when people are panicking, when people are fearful, that's when they will commit atrocities yeah. because they're not thinking straight. Yeah. So that's when you have to absolutely hold firm to ethical principles like you never separate loved ones. It just, you know, it doesn't matter if the disease is 90%, you know, fatal. If a mother wants to be with her child, so be it. You know, it's not for anyone else to tell her she cannot be with her child or her husband or her parents or whatever it is. So, yeah, so we set that up. Uh, we're a sort of group of medical professionals, doctors, nurses, uh, alternative medical professionals, lawyers, and some scientists. And we've been writing open letters to regulators, governments, um, royal colleges, basically as the pandemic went on over anything to do with ethics. So mandates for masks, for testing to school children, vaccines, all of these different things where the ethics was not being followed. And actually that was causing great harm and was just wrong. And we produced templates for uh, the public to help them to be able to be educated and empowered to make their own case in their own situation as to what was right or wrong um, and what they shouldn't be being asked to do um, ethically. Because medical ethics are enshrined in law. Uh, not only nationally, but internationally as well, and lots of codes and um, professional codes. The GMC, the, that's the Medical Council, the Nursing Midwifery Council, all have codes of practice that absolutely enshrine informed consent. Yeah. So, so it is a right that people have. And I think a lot of people don't know what rights they have. They think they're asking for something that's that's unreasonable, but actually it's a right that's been enshrined, you know, in laws and codes across the world for decades and hundreds of years and how how do we come back to this liz i mean as a society as well how do we come back to well, ethics to wisdom to intuition to putting humanity at the heart of what we do because i get a sense that we almost on a conveyor belt that is rather technocratic that is coming from this sort of one world view and that we're being fast-tracked into something that perhaps isn't what we all want, but we sort of feel we can't step off the conveyor belt. So is there is there an opportunity for us to change the direction, do you think? Um, I think by not going along with the things that are being put into place, because they're being put into place by a very tiny minority of people, actually, and we are a huge majority. So, for example, even things like self-service checkouts, for example, you know, that's a non-medical example, but, you know, that's going to be robbing someone of a job. Yeah. So I 90, 95% of the time, I can't say 100% of the time now, always go and queue for a person because I just object to that dehumanization of our society because actually, and I, and I make an effort then to talk to the cashier as well and say how nice it is, you know, because the, the thing is we've got to start with ourselves. Yeah. And if we're doing things like that and if everybody does it, 
none of this can come to pass. We're, we're sort of sold this complete fallacy that, well, progress just happens and this is just going to happen and there's nothing we can do and AI will take over and as if it as if it has a mind of its own and if, as if it's in control. But of course it's not. We actually, we can just reject it, you know, and things like smartphones for our kids, you know, making wise decisions on, you know, how our family lives and you know do you go for convenience over you know putting the work in cooking healthily all, all these different things you know supporting local farmers yes. there's so many things that we do we we need to vote with our feet and our money basically lovely story just to finish with and then I'll give you the final word Liz but um I read a story about somebody who'd said to his wife oh I'm just going out to buy an envelope and she said, why are you going out to buy an envelope? You know, you've got you've got an account with Amazon you, and you don't, you're not short of money. You could order a box of 100 envelopes and they'd be delivered here tomorrow. And he ignored her and went out to buy his envelope. And he describes that on the way he met this person and that person had chatted to someone and chatted to someone in the shop and came back and he'd had all those connections and he'd got his envelope. And, you know, mm-hmm. yes, if you're short of time, you don't spend an hour going to buy an envelope. But the point was... It was it was part of connecting with his community. It's the same where I live. I live in a village. If I go into the village, I'm going to meet five or six people that I know, <laughs> reconnect with my community. Um, I make the I make the choice to join a village choir and so on. And I think if we don't do that, we are losing those opportunities to connect with other human beings and for human flourishing. So um anyway Liz give us your final thought and then maybe um some uh connection details where people can find more about what you're doing and um how they can how they can find you yeah so I think I would just really encourage people on the health front to take charge of your own health and your family's health so you know get outside exercise eat healthily read up you know about supplements invest a bit in your health we're very used to in this country being told everything's for free well you you don't expect your car to be serviced for free and mot'd for free and repaired for free you know it's worth a bit of investment you know in some supplements or maybe seeing a nutritionist once or twice a year or just things that you can do that empower you make your body as healthy as possible so you're less dependent on uh, doctors and the pharmaceutical industry and and you feel better for it so yeah so I think and also demand from your doc it, that spot the red flags you know work out when you're not being um, given informed consent and call it out you know we have to start demanding as a public that our doctors practice medicine in an ethical way and if they're not you call it out speak up yeah speak up <laughs> thank you Liz and where do we find you um and all the work that you're doing so the website is ukmedfreedom.org we're on twitter at ukmfa1 we've got a podcast uh, which is on rumble just r- type in uk medical freedom alliance but also we're now on apple spotify all the major platforms we've started interviewing um people who care about medical ethics so doctors who are being persecuted often for stepping out talking about patient safety uh, we need to support doctors like that because they're the ones who are trying to you know look after the public going forward in the long term so yeah d- yeah follow us on our, our channels and please do sign up to our newsletter on our website because 
that's not going to come that often, maybe once a month, but it will tell you any calls to action, campaign updates, um, any new resources we've put out, and we'll just keep you in the loop. We're doing a big Stop the Who campaign at the moment about the Who power grab, uh, and there's lots of resources on the website that you can educate yourself uh, on that. Absolutely fantastic, Liz. Thank you so much for your time. Okay, brilliant. I really enjoyed chatting about ethics, and so thank you. Thanks so much, Jane. Really lovely conversation. Thank you for listening to this podcast if you enjoyed this episode please share it with your friends and colleagues please do subscribe to the barefoot mediator podcast series and if you would like to access my free video series for managing in times of change challenge and crisis and download a pdf copy of my book how to beat bedlam in the boardroom and boredom in the bedroom please go to janegunn.co.uk slash video the link is in the show notes